This is uh, part two of a message I did, I think it was two weeks ago. First one did not get recorded for Sermon Audio, so this is a part two. I believe it was recorded live on uh, Facebook group page, Sovereign Grace Society. But the title of the message is Christ All-Powerful. John chapter 17, and we will read the first three verses. This is uh, what's considered, what's been called Christ's high priestly prayer. This is a prayer he offered to his father shortly before he was crucified, before they took him and uh, tried him and so on and so forth here. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son so that your son also may glorify you. Even as you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In case I forget to mention that later, uh, I think I did last time, the word power in verse 2, as you have given him power. And Christ is talking about himself. You have given him, talking about me, as he prays. You have given me power. And the word there can also be translated authority. And we'll see uh, some other uh, verses how that that word authority is used. And depending on what version you have or translation, it could be interchangeable. But uh, some of the Greek words are different in the original. We want to talk about both. His power in reference to his might or his strength or his ability. And also his authority to do these things. His divine sovereign right to do these things. So that's what we touched on a, a couple weeks back. And we looked so far under two headings. We looked at the power of Christ... We know the creation was delegated to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he took on flesh, before the foundation of the world, before anything was created. He was the eternal Son of God in the form of a spirit before he took on flesh 2,000 years ago. And it was delegated to him to create the world. And we noted that he did that. There's several texts that show that. But we noted that he did it through the means of his spoken word. He is the word, and he spoke the word to create. He spoke things into existence that weren't there before. And I had mentioned that if you can understand the power of God in salvation, and you have experienced that, then you're not going to have any problem with him speaking things into existence that weren't there. I mean, that's, that's effortless. All it took was the eternal, all-powerful God to just say, with this purpose in his mind, let it be, and it was. That's easy. And I have no doubts about that. Now, the, the world that has behind it the spirit of Antichrist tries to, at every turn, make people doubt this thing of creation. It's all over the place. It's a heated battle. And it's probably has more far-reaching things that we can even see. You can't keep up with it. I'm not going to waste my time with it because we're presuppositionalists. And we presuppose 
where God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, I believe that. And we should have an understanding of that. It says in Hebrews 11 that by faith we understand how that the worlds were framed. So we understand. We not only believe, but there's an understanding backing our belief. Why? Because we have been given a revelation of who this God is that has this unlimited power. He is God. It was one of his names is God Almighty. He's omnipotent, all powerful. So once we've been saved by sovereign grace and we've experienced what God had to do to change us, move us from death unto life, from condemnation to justification, nothing else compared to that is hard for God. Secondly, we saw the power of Christ in the providence, how that he not only created things, but those same things that he created. It says in Hebrews 1 that he upholds all things by the word of his power. There again, the means, the word of his power. We know it it says in Colossians that all things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist or are held together, sovereign cohesion. If he decides to sovereignly let them go, which he does sometimes, you know, he's the God that, that kills and makes alive. He's the God that wounds and heals. He's the God that forms vessels unto honor, vessels unto dishonor. He has declared the end from the beginning. He does what he wants, what he wants, to who he wants, why ever he wants. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will harden whom I'll harden. Has the divine right or authority to do that, and he has the power to carry those purposes out, declaring the end from the beginning. He doesn't work from the beginning, and he's thinking, oh, I got this goal to hopefully at the end get this thing right. He declared the end from the beginning. And it's not that just he knows, like he, he super projects his mind, he says, I see what's eventually going to happen. He's out ahead of it. He has decreed it. And what happens is subservient to what he has decreed. And that's what takes place. So we, we saw those things, creation and providence. And again, I would like you to think about that, about the ease of those things for an almighty God compared to your own justification and regeneration and things like that. And I, I think that's something you can grow in seeing, especially when you have just been convicted for some sin you just committed and your mind goes to back to Christ where it should go for assurance and you're thankful for this propitiation that he accomplished that satisfies law and justice and holds back the wrath of God and you think, and if he can do that, if he did do that successfully, effectually, he finished that work, then anything else, why, why even raise it out? Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 7. So we're, we're just now, we're, we're going into the power of Christ in salvation. And I want to just mention something about his doctrine, which we know the gospel is comprised of both doctrine and theology. And we know in 2 John, it talks about, in other books, it talks about the doctrine of Christ, which is part and parcel of the gospel. This is the doctrine that he spoke. 
He came to do the will of the Father. He brought his Father's doctrine. That's in connection with the decree, tied in with the covenant of grace. And it flows out from there. Verse 28 of Matthew 7. We're familiar with all the verses leading up to this about the narrow way, the straight gate. And at the end, after he concludes those things, it says in verse 28, And it happened when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine. And there's a reason. The next verse tells you. For or because he taught them as one having authority, power, divine right, not as scribes. And scribes didn't know what they were talking about. They thought they had the authority. They thought they had the right. They thought they had the warrant to speak for God, to represent God, to be God's ambassador. But they didn't know what they were talking about. Christ straightened out several occasions. Like, for example, just one, he was, of course, he called him, he said, You're your father of the devil. But he would say, you think you're a teacher of the law, you didn't keep the law yourself. You're clueless about this law thing. And then we, we read later about satisfaction of the law, that Christ is the end of the law for justification or righteousness. So they were clueless. They thought they were teachers of the law, didn't know anything about the law. They judged by the law. They automatically condemned themselves. They knew nothing about the very basics of the law or the gospel. One appeared to him at night, Nicodemus, John 3. Christ, so to speak, cleaned his clock, said, You don't even know about earthly things. How can I tell you about spiritual things? You got a PhD, you don't even know the, you don't even understand about the weather. So these are the scholars, the ones with the lifelong training, with the long white beards that thought they were something in their self-righteousness. But Christ here stresses with his own words that he through his doctrine had authority and had the right and the power and all these things to say what he was saying he is god in the flesh the god who cannot lie he is the way the truth and the life so he when he speaks he speaks with authority it's kind of interesting and a joy to watch him deal with these goofy, illogical religious people and use the logic of God. By the way, he is. The word, word, can be translated logic. He is the word. He is the logic of God. And whatever he says, he can't be hemmed up, can't be trapped. He is a perfect debater and one who brings forth perfect reasoning and argument. God is rational. And we should strive for logic, rationality, and things that are of a sound mind. Speaking of, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It talks about a sound mind here. And I want us to see that. I went to the first verse there to talk about the authority or doctrine that he had. And I want us to see that we have the same doctrine. We have it. If we don't, we're in trouble. There's the warning in 2 John. If you don't have that doctrine, you don't have God. To have the doctrine is synonymous with, and this is life eternal, that you know me. That's through that doctrine. 
knowing God is the same thing as what the doctrine is saying about God. Those things, how can those things not match? They have to match. Second Timothy chapter one and verse seven. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but what? Counterwise, what has he given us? The spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. We don't have a double mind. We don't have a mind that is full of anxiety in reference to fear because we doubt our salvation, because we're looking inside, because his doctrine told us not to look inside, but to look at Christ. Therefore, verse 8, you should not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. Nor of me, his prisoner, but be partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to, again, the power of God. So when we're consistent with the gospel, when we bring out the offense of the cross, which means we don't compromise the message of the gospel of the personal work of Christ, when we bring that message out in boldness and keep people's eyes focused on Christ and what he did and, and not leave any wiggle room to look anywhere else for salvation but Christ alone, there's going to be persecution, afflictions, tribulation, and this is orchestrated by God. This is promised what will happen if we stick to the consistency of the gospel in honoring the character of God in Christ. Go to verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. You can add in brackets, at all. Right? Not according to our works at all. I mean, run that thing through the filter and round and round until you just are convinced that there is nothing immediately or by extension where there is a, a meritorious thing that you do, that you have brought salvation to yourself somewhere, or even a cooperation. But this is a work of God. And we're saved by someone else. We don't co-op our salvation. We don't cooperate in order to bring it. Uh, we're not the part B of the catalyst of part A. We don't add to what he has done. There's no conditions that to bring it up to this much and then you do the what's left even if you have to get to the super microscope to see what that is and then if that doesn't count this well you've done the best you can and your sincerity at least counts for something I mean isn't that fair why would God demand something else besides your sincerity people go to those extremes so where sincerity replaces the truth you gotta toss it out because we know even ignorance is condemnation there's no excuse for ignorance. And ignorance is orchestrated by God, by his sovereignty, who has the power or divine right to put that in place. And it looks like it does on the majority of people. The middle part of that, verse 9, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now this is, let me be clear here just quickly, it's not, this is not saying we're saved before the foundation of the world. So the purpose of God was before the foundation of the world in Christ. 
We're not saved by our works, but we're saved by what Christ has done on that foundation. But the purpose was already settled a long time ago. Even in the purpose and mind of God, it's just as good as done. We believe that. God sends affection on us. And that affection was in Christ. Election was in Christ. Nothing changes that. All God's people will be saved. They're just as secure as if they already were saved before the foundation of the world. But they are not saved until they are saved. So the purpose was in Christ before the world began. Verse 10. But now it's having been made known or manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made death of no effect. He killed, he killed death with his death. That's what he did. Bringing life and immortality to light, so we can see it, through the means of the gospel. So this is how we see all these things that God did. And all that was purposed before the foundation of the world. It doesn't remain secret to God's people. It's made manifest or made known. So we see it with our eyes of faith that God has given us. It's revealed. Just going back to, we have this doctrine. What Christ had, what those people were astonished at, we got it. We have it. So you should feel good about it. We don't have the spirit of fear, but of power, of sound mind, in connection with this Christ. Because this doctrine has told us about him. Now if you move away from that. Or you digress or retrogress in that. You're not exercised in that. you got nothing but doubt and fear and anxiety coming your way. And it's because you're not looking to the proper place of where God shows us to look. So here's the question. Since I've said all that, I was thinking about this this week. Some of you have been here less time than others, but I've already had conversations with most everybody. Because when people come into this fellowship, they seem to figure out right away how our view matches Scripture. It has to do with the number of people that know and believe this gospel. And the more you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you see errors that are pointed out in Scripture and you see nothing new is under the sun, but you see these errors recycled throughout history. And you keep seeing all these errors about the personal work of Christ come up. You see the, the serious narrowness of the truth of the gospel. It just seems like it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And there might be some cases where you say, you know, I don't even, I don't know. It hurts me to think about it. I'm going to quit thinking about it for a while because it seems to be going back to the days of Noah, which of course it says that it will be like the days of Noah and the man shall return. It, it just makes us see closer about what this few really means compared to the many. So, do you all have the faith in that context of what I just said? Do you have the faith in reference to the power of God that he is able to get his message, the one that we know and believe and teach and defend every week, can he get that message to all of his people to convert them? There's promises that said he's going to. Some people will say, 
in connection with that verse, leave the contents of the gospel out, and they'll say, yeah, he says he's going to be all his people. But they might be thinking, his people like today on the earth, where there's like 7 billion people, they might think be thinking, well, yeah, I think he can get 3 billion people saved today. As if, and I'm not talking future, like who are going to be saved, but currently we know the theological landscape of the world, and it's hard to find people that believe the gospel. But some people think there's a great revival going on. It's because they have a they have a, a lower standard of what the gospel message is. They talk about hey, over here in this foreign country, there it's just like it's a revival. There's hundreds and thousands of people being saved, and then you go chase over there and look at the contents of that message. You're thinking, are you serious? Because they have a message that has no content of what the gospel really is, and then also the methods that are connected to it. A couple of years ago, one of the churches I left in my younger days, this guy was going to India. He was preaching through the trail of blood. That's what landmarkers do. There's a little book that talks about the history of the Baptist church. And he was preaching through the trail of blood. and 2,000 souls got saved one night. I mean, I knew what this guy's message was to begin with, and it was not the gospel. It was about a generic message of this guy named Jesus that, that did something. and It's better than the Hindu religion. And Come on, you can be in the Baptist Club. I'll give you a copy of this little booklet. And you can be on my team. Can you believe in this Jesus I'm talking about? Which is not the same one we're talking about. Now, God can save 2,000 people in one shot. We've seen uh, he did 3,000, you know, I think it was in Acts. But we have to keep in context what message are we talking about that's being used. If, if a wrong gospel or a false gospel is being used, you know how many people are going to be saved? Zero. Zero. So I'm bringing this question to your mind, thinking about the narrowness of the message, which is just reflects what the scripture says about it. I want us to shore up in our minds the power of God. So we can understand that, yes, he will. He will save his people. You know, some people might think, well, i, I tell you what I'm going to do in my mind. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say that God is so sovereign that he can save people in spite of the gospel. That's a fatalistic idea. That's hyper-Calvinism. A lot of primitive Baptists and tolerant Calvinists hold to that who, who make no distinctions in gospels. Heard a story or read a quote the other day about Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a, like a Calvinian. He was saying that the sovereign grace person that looks badly and thinks that Arminianism is a false gospel is really denying sovereign grace. And his proof of that, he said, look at the man John Wesley. He said this will wipe out the, the Calvinist argument that. God saved John Wesley despite of his doctrinal error. He came short of calling it a false gospel. John Wesley hated God's guts. He despised the truth of sovereign grace and imputed righteousness and effectual atonement, which is the only ground of salvation. He hated it. He fought against it. And he hated God's <coughs> preachers that taught it. But Lord Jones, Martin Lord Jones said, this is supposed to like wipe away the sovereign grace argument that Arminianism is false gospel because God saved John Wesley in spite of his errors. 
Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It's ridiculous. Brings us back to that thought. The message has to be right. Do we have the faith that God can... Providence is involved, right? He's the creator. He controls providence. So he's going to be the control of where this message goes. Are we worried he doesn't have enough people to get the message to other people? I'm not worried about it. He's going to get his message to other people. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's by faith. And faith can't be there unless the gospel's there. So the gospel's going to be there. God has all this power that I'm trying to talk about today. Again, it's hard to find. I mean, look how many people we have. I've been looking for people for 30 years. I've been looking for other churches that teach what we teach. Can't find any around here within within comfortable driving distance. You gotta go visit Guyo, you gotta visit Jason, two hours, three hours, you go to Ashland. You know, you gotta drive. Uh, Bobby Wright's church there in uh, Mount Summit, Indiana, you gotta drive. So God will not go against his character and say, I'm so sovereign. I'm going to save this person in an unjust way with a false gospel. Uh, no, he's the God that can't lie. He's not going to tell a lie about himself, especially. Because that particular snapshot of time during the conversion experience is when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's not going to show us some substandard. Uh, that's ridiculous. You don't even do that with yourself. You think God's going to do it? You think if I have been doing something for 30 years. I'm going to pick the thing that I did the first day on the job, which probably stinks. Instead of showing you the thing I just made last week that I'm so much better at last week, maybe you think I'm going to say, here's my best. That's ridiculous. And I'm a human being. God is the God Almighty. Everything he does is perfect. But his glory is focused in and magnified on this very thing we're talking about, the gospel. He's not going to compromise, first of all, on anything, especially this. He's not going to lie about who he is. I, I don't know if people even think about that. Comparatively, like, we wouldn't do that. Do you expect God to do it? I mean, how much? He's perfect, and we're, we're out of it when it comes to everything compared to him. So he has the power to do all these things. So we're going to look at the power of Christ and salvation. We talk about this every week, but I wanted to isolate the attribute of power. So I might either decide to do a part three or skip some of the things in my notes. I don't even know what I'm going to do. So we'll find out what's predestined. And we know that Christ and his Father and the Spirit of God, in connection with this power, there, there has to be certain things in place. We have to be reminded of certain things. We know that God's holy. He's righteous and he's just. Those are just three attributes. We know there are many more attributes, but keeping that in mind. Because of this, he cannot look upon sin and let it slide. He must punish sin. And because of who he is, he demands not just punishing sin, but he demands something above that. He demands absolute perfection from everybody all the time, every time, past, present, and future. When you bring it forth that hard and that strict and that's true, what we just said, people right away think humanistically there is no way that anyone can be saved. And that's what we want people to think. 
when it comes to the snapshot of their own humanity. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And specifically here, in Christ, in reference to the gospel of Christ. We know that mankind, he doesn't fit this description of absolute perfection all the time, every time. He doesn't fit that because of we know our description by nature in the scripture of total depravity. We have a, a sin nature. We're legally condemned through Adam. We have no ability to do things that are spiritual until the spirit comes and changes that, gives us an ability to see and understand and believe, and then after that to do certain things. So it's quite a dilemma. We're shut up to mercy. We're in a corner to where, okay, I do understand now that I can't do anything. So do I concentrate on I, now I can't do anything the rest of your life? No, you concentrate on what are the contents of the gospel? Let's see what Christ said that he did to rescue similar people such as I. He came to save sinners. You so far seem to think that you fit that criteria of being a sinner all the way down to your will is not free and that everything the scripture says this this is another offensive thing that the scripture says about unbelievers and we're going to talk about this sometime soon in total depravity we're going to go back over the doctrines of grace sometime soon but this is very they hate God for one thing unbelievers hate God whether they know it or not but the scripture says that everything they do, and let me stress, everything, I don't care how, how good you think it is, I don't care how good you take a survey or a poll and people might raise you up and honor you for something, I don't care if it's life-saving, I don't care if it's some kind of medals that you win, I don't care if it's a Nobel Peace Prize, I don't care, I stack them all up. Scripture says that everything unbeliever does is sin and evil and wicked. Everything. It's because he is in a state of enmity or he's God's enemy. He hates God, whether he does or not. He has his own righteousness, which is the biggest offense to God. He is self-righteous which stabs at the most honorable thing that God has performed in Christ of establishing a righteousness. That's his chief glory, the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And you are rejecting that. You say, I'm good, I got my own. That's the main evidence that you are a God-hater if you're an unbeliever. It's because you are self-righteous. Everything. It says the plowing of the ground is sin. In other words, an unbeliever, every time he clocks in, or every time he provides for his kids, for his wife, or if it's a wife for their husband, you can sit here all day and name them. It is completely evil, wicked, and sin. Whatever is not of faith, Romans 14, is sin. That's offensive. I hope you believe that. In reference to yourself outside of Christ if you were to look to yourself outside of Christ that's what we are 
That's what we are in our own persons, separate from Christ. We are not separate from Christ anymore. But when you were, that's what you are. You are the noun, sin, completely. Total depravity is the unbeliever being as bad as he can be. You can't get any worse than sin, complete. Everything you do, everything you are. That has to the idea this is a dilemma. This has got to be fixed. How can this be fixed? Right? And how can, just basically zeroing in on, how can this type of a person be justified with a holy God? That's the question. It's not what can you do. We've already ruled out you can't do anything. Something has to be done on his end for this to happen, for this to take place, for this to be fixed. Reconciliation has to take place by some ground. In other words, how can a person be seen absolutely perfect and complete in the eyes of God when God looks at them and judges them? That what's, that's what has to happen. That's what has to take place. They must be perfectly righteous, which means they are seen to have met the unchanging, inflexible standard of God's holy law. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've come short of the standard of Christ who is the glory of God. In other words, in a nutshell, just saying, if you're not like Christ, you're done. You have to be just like him. So God, to save people, has to make people just like him. And that's what the gospel explains out, that he is going to take some people that he has chosen and make them righteous. And the gospel explains all that out. Of course, it's a mystery before the understanding is open and we have faith to see how that happens. It's a mystery because everybody's always looking. What am I doing? i, I got to do something. And they're going about to produce a righteousness of their own by doing. But much more importantly, we talked about man must be just with God. More importantly, because this salvation is always Godward. It's God, God takes care of himself first. He's got to, or else we can't be taken care of. His own character has to be honored. Much more importantly, it means that when God Almighty justifies, he must do it. He must in a way that is consistent with his divine character, his justice. He has to be faithful to himself to do this right. So this really is where we see the most uh, intense magnification of the power of God, the subject that we're talking about, and any other attribute really that you want to run through the filter of the cross. At the cross is where we see God more clearly than any place else. You can talk about creation, you can see the power of God there, you can talk about providence, you can see the power of God there, but right here, when this exchange takes place, what it took to do it, the wisdom backing it, the power backing it, the justice and righteousness and holiness and, and the wrath and the grace and the mercy and all those things are all combined together. This is where you see God. If you don't see God here, you don't know God. It's the performance of the gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is the key to fixing this problem. It's Christ alone. We're going to zero it down to Christ alone. Take alone out, you're done. It's not Christ plus what you do. We know all this. 
So he has given, he has been given power or authority to do this. We read that in the second verse of our text. I'll read it again for you if you're not there. John 17, 2, as you have given him power or authority over all flesh so that he should give eternal life to all you have given him or me. All that you've given me. Again, that jives with John 6, 37. All the Father gives me saying the same thing. Christ says, I've got, I've got authority over all flesh, both elect and non-elect. And also specifically nestled in that fact, I have the power and authority so that I may give life, that I will give life to those that you gave to me. These are the elect. These are the ones chosen from the foundation of the world. The sheep, God's remnant, his chosen, his elect. And these other names too throughout his people, throughout scripture. We know he's the only qualified one. He was chosen. He's called the elect. I don't know if that's like Isaiah 42, I think. Um, he's elect, precious. He's the one, the only one qualified to do this. Let me run through a few of these things real quick. That he is and that he did in connection to this power that we have to keep in mind. And, and some of these things I'm going to mention, people in the world, they cast doubt on. They say that... That could have happened. Okay, we know that Christ had him body. We had spoken earlier about before time, he was uh, only in the form of the Spirit, the eternal Son of God in spirit form. And even coming up through the uh, Old Testament, he was in that same state. And then he took on flesh later, which we're going to get to. But we know he had to have a body. And I have about four points under here just briefly. He came to be a sacrifice. That's one big reason he had to have a body. Uh, it says in a few different places he had to be like unto his brethren. Talking about these ones that the Father gave him. He had to be like them. He had to have a human body and a human nature. Now there's a difference in his nature. We'll get to that in a second. But he's hands on on this thing. In other words, he's not God transcendent up there saying... I wish there was someone I could send you guys down there, but I can't get down there to do it. i got to get down there to do it in my wisdom, but I... No. Christ came down in a body. He had to have a body to be a sacrifice. God has to have a sacrifice. This is part of our other point where he has to do this in just way. He must have a sacrifice. Because that's the only way sin can be taken care of. He's too holy to look on sin. If he's going to look on a person, you got to have a sacrifice to fix this problem. Christ is that one. So he had to have a body to be that sacrifice. We know, secondly, he had to have a sinless body. We know that he came down, this is tied to the third part, concerning the virgin birth. He was virgin born. He had to come down, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He had to come down in a body, it's a human body, but the nature of that body is different than our sinful nature. So he had to bypass that sinful nature through the virgin birth to get around Adam's sin imputed and Adam's sin nature imparted. And this was done through the means of the virgin birth. And this is one who not only had a human nature, which was sinless, 
But he also had his other nature that he had eternally, his divine nature. And these two were brought together as one. Is this hard? You might not be able to get your little intellectual microscope and see what that looks like, but no, it's not hard. God in his power, just like all those other power, took the seed from the spirit and put it in a virgin. If he could create everything out of nothing, this is not hard for him to do. And he did it. So one person with two natures, a sinless nature and a divine nature in one person. Unique, totally unique. Nobody else has that. And it's done through the power of God. He was born of this virgin and born under the law so that he might keep it, honor it, fulfill it, magnify it. Can he do that? Well, there's a, there's a lot of things guaranteeing he can. The decree of God guarantees it. Uh, who he is in reference to him being God himself. And then connected to this, this other human nature that is in fact sinless, which can never be sinful, ever. These things are fixed and unchanging. You can just look at those doctrines concerning who he is, and you can know that he is not going to sin. He is, under this law, he is not going to be personally in his own nature. He is not going to be infected with sin. Secondly, we know that Christ had to die. Sacrifice pretty much implies that he's got to die, but we're going to go further and explain. He must die as an offering to be that sacrifice, an offering to God for his people, but majoring on to God. So he must suffer and die. The wages of sin is death, right? That's what our wages were. I mean, we earned death. So our debt of death must be paid off. And we talked earlier that he defeats death with his death. So his purpose for coming down was to die. He, he said that in several different places. And it surprised a lot of people that were close to him. Like, God, that's not going to happen. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. That's why I came. That's what my kingdom's all about. And I'm going to end with this, and uh, I've run out of time, but the means by which that Christ, and this deserves a whole message within itself, and maybe, uh, all right, I'm going to stop. Because I just said it deserves a whole message within itself. I'm going to talk about specifics and particulars of, I had mentioned that this is the, the most magnified time of seeing God's attributes, so. I'm not going to spend 60 seconds on it, so we're going to take it to next week. Any questions or comments?